When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm Ben Zimmer, language columnist for The Wall Street Journal. And this is Spectacular Vernacular, a podcast where we not only explore language, we also play with it. This week, our guest is Dr. Jesse Greaser of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, who has a new book out called The Black Side of the River, Race, Language, and Belonging in Washington, D.C. And later, we'll try to stump a listener with a brand new wordplay puzzle. Hey, Nicole. You know, one thing we have in common is we both love keeping up with current events. I know we're both kind of news junkies, but as language people, we're always noticing little things, you know, when there's a a linguistic hot take that's related to the news in some way. Yeah, that's kind of our jam, and it turns out to be pretty helpful since we're hosting a language podcast. (laughs) Well, this week, with all the concerns about a possible Russian invasion in Ukraine, a certain city name has been popping up in the news quite a lot. Kiev. 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 Oof. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. The capital of Ukraine is one of those place names I try to avoid saying because I don't feel confident about its pronunciation. And I'm a linguist, so that must be even worse for regular folks. Yeah, well, the good news is that the New York Times recently tried to help us all out with a piece that was called How Do You Say Kiev, spelled K-Y-I-V. It Can Be Hard for English Speakers. That was the headline. Yeah, I saw that piece. And in it, according to Andriy Smitsnyuk, apologies for my pronunciation, who is a Ukrainian professor at Cambridge, it's like this. So the K is like English K, no problem. The Y is like the I in bit, but the I in the spelling is like the ya in yeast, and the V is like the short version of the V in love. Nice and easy, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, so let me piece that together. So that would be like Kiev. Kiev? That's as close as I'm going to get, I think. So we're going with the Ukrainian pronunciation, or at least an approximation of the way Ukrainians might themselves say it. But a lot of Americans may be more familiar with the pronunciation of Kiev, which is actually closer to the Russian pronunciation. Yeah, so now my sociolinguist spidey sense is tingling. Does that mean the choice to pronounce it as Kiev or Kiev is political? Of course. You know, politics always enters into these things, right? In fact, the New York Times ran a piece back in 2019 on this issue, and there they quoted a Ukrainian lecturer at Columbia, Yuri Shevchuk, who says that State Department employees in Washington generally try to pronounce it the Ukrainian way out of respect to Ukrainians. Also, I noticed that NPR recently announced that they were going to make this more Ukrainian version their official on-air pronunciation, and they gave similar reasons. So this Ukrainian-style pronunciation, when American officials say it, it often comes out something like Kiev, just that like one-syllable Kiev. Uh, so, for instance, here's Deputy Secretary of State Wendy R. Sherman saying it. President Biden authorized $200 million in security assistance in December, and the first shipments began arriving in Kiev in recent days. 
Yeah, so she's doing her best with her uh, English phonology, her English pronunciation system. And when I said it, I also had to say it as Kiev, which isn't exactly right, but closer, I guess. I've also seen two different spellings of the city. One that seems older, uh, like K-I-E-V, and the one that I've seen more recently, K-Y-I-V. And this is also political, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually similar to the pronunciation issue. That spelling with Y that you're seeing now that is clearly being embraced by, you know, New York Times, NPR, um, and so forth, um, that also reflects a transliteration from Ukraine. And that other spelling, K-I-E-V, that's more like a transliteration from Russian. And that's still going to show up in things like Chicken Kiev, for instance. I don't think they're going to re-spell that. That's kind of a bit fixed in the language. But that, that reflects that older Russian style rather than the Ukrainian style. Yeah, so it makes sense that we're seeing the Y spelling more and more because the U.S. government has made it clear that they're Ukraine's allies and have threatened Russia with sanctions if they don't back off. So it's a great example of a political issue that's influencing how we do language. At the heart of it, of course, language is a social phenomenon. So the facts of the world almost always do affect how people are using it. Absolutely. And if you thought we couldn't get from the spelling of Ukraine's capital to language change in the U.S. capital in a couple of minutes, well, you were wrong. We're going to do a quick segue now. After the break, we'll talk with Professor Jessie Greaser about her new book on how racial politics and gentrification affect the linguistic situation in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Spectacular Vernacular. Our guest today is Dr. Jesse Greaser, an Associate Professor of Linguistics in the Department of English at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Jesse is a sociolinguist who specializes in African-American English and language, race, and place. Her new book is called The Black Side of the River, Race, Language, and Belonging in Washington, D.C. She's also a great friend of the pod, and we're so excited to have her on. Welcome to the show, Jesse. It's great to be with you. Thanks for being with us, Jesse, and congratulations on the new book. I believe that the publication date is actually when this podcast airs. Exactly. You guys get the the in. So Nicole and I have both had a chance to dive into it, and it's a fascinating take on language change in a Black community in Washington, D.C. called Anacostia, and the effects of gentrification on the community. Full disclosure, I like this book so much that I wrote a blurb for it. I understand, though, you've been working on this book for a long time, but uh, what drew you to the topic initially? Well, it actually came out of a more quantitative study where I was interested in class change and what's happening um, to African-Americans of different social classes, because that's something that's been somewhat understudied in sociolinguistics more broadly. And so I wanted to study this neighborhood where the neighborhood was gentrifying and starting to change, but it was mostly happening with middle-class Black people moving into the neighborhood rather than the more typical pattern of gentrification where you see a racial change in addition to the class change. And so I thought I would find some interesting quantitative patterns. And uh, spoiler alert, I did. But what I really discovered was that what people wanted to talk to me about were their identities of place and race and what it meant to them to be Black people situated in a neighborhood that was historically Black. It's on the grounds of a former plantation that turned into a, a freed slave settlement. And so that sense of Black place was really important to my interviewees. And so after I finished the first study, I went, you know what, I need to write something completely different. And I need to dig into the thing that really matters to these people. Yeah, there's a you shared with us a clip that's really interesting, where 
Uh, I think you have a speaker named Dolores, and she talks about how she's never known a white person to live in the neighborhood. Maybe we can hear that clip really quickly. As you come up on the left-hand side, right. there's some houses there that uh, that ha- is and is being remodeled, and they occupy by white people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a good thing. Yeah. All of us are supposed to live together. Yeah. But this, I've never known a white person of my <laughs> Never. So when I walked down the street, I introduced myself and spoke with them and everything. They seemed to be nice people. Neat. They said they enjoyed the neighborhood. I told them good. You know. Yeah, this is super interesting because she doesn't have negative feelings about the folks moving in, but she's just kind of surprised because she hasn't seen white folks there before. Right. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about sort of that that feeling that you got from the participants? Yeah. And what's really interesting and that I should emphasize for the listeners is that this was actually in a time when there really weren't very many white people moving in. And so one of the things that people did was they would talk about what was happening in terms of all of these white people coming to the neighborhood. Um, And I think part of that was marketness. And so the neighborhood is 94% what the census calls Black alone, which, Nicole, you and I know that excludes those of us that check more than one box but consider ourselves to be part of the Black community. Um, So it's actually even Blacker than that. And so at that time, there were very few white people moving in. And so there was um, several different ways that people talked about it. So sometimes you got this very positive framing that Dolores is uh, embodying, where it's like, we welcome them, we want them to be a part of our community. Sometimes you got a very negative framing. And so I had one person who compared it to Achebe's Things Fall Apart and the the white colonizers eventually just completely destroy the African community. And then you had people who were just kind of neutral about it and who said, oh, you know, white people are here. Change is happening. This will be interesting. Um, And all of those were ways that people used to really stake their claim as Black people on the neighborhood in a variety of different ways of just like noting the whiteness that was happening by reverse did their own racial identity. So yeah, you're talking a little bit about how people mention their feelings about neighborhood change. I love the title of the book, The Black Side of the River, and it really invokes the residential segregation that you mentioned, sort of history of the community. Um, And in the book, you have a real focus on the discourses about place and gentrification. And we sort of saw that as an example from the clip with Dolores. But can you tell us a bit more about what discourse is for a linguist and a, a little more about how the discourses play out in the community you studied and maybe over time as the gentrification proceeded? One thing I key back to is this idea of big D discourse. So like capital D discourse, um, which comes from James G. And the idea of a big D discourse is this is kind of the way that we talk about this thing. And the example I often give is when we talk about parenting or parents, especially parenting babies, um, parents of babies are tired. And so no matter how you respond as a parent of a baby, you're going to be orienting to this like tiredness. You're either going to be saying, oh, I have so much more energy than I thought, or I'm so exhausted, but like there's somehow this discourse that parents are tired. And so there are two big D discourses about gentrification, one that it's about class change only and one that it's about racial change. And so what you see in the way that people in Anacostia talk about their neighborhood is that they 
orient toward that racial change, big D discourse. And um, they do that in a variety of ways. So for example, talking about us versus them and them becomes not only the city, but also all non-Black people. And then us, by contrast, becomes all Black people. So it's not just Anacostians. And I even had an interviewee who said that explicitly. And he said, it's going to become bad for us. Us meaning Black folk. And just made that extraordinarily explicit of saying, we are including all of the Black community as people who belong here, like all Black people. This is space for all Black people. And so by orienting to that big D discourse in a particular way, it allows people to basically claim this is the Black side of the river. This is where Black people belong. So the book focuses quite a bit on how the historical settlement and migration patterns of Washington, D.C. gave rise to its specific linguistic and social characteristics, not just in this neighborhood of Anacostia, but the city overall. Could you tell us a bit more about that history, especially for folks who might be less familiar with D.C.? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things to understand about D.C., D.C. is the original chocolate city. And so Parliament, Funkadelic, actually created a song in 1970 called Chocolate City. Hey, uh, we didn't get our 40 acres and a mule, but we did get you, C.C. (laughs) Yeah. And all of the lyrics are about Black people taking over Washington. And uh, they even talk about having a Black person to the White House. Um, Of course, that took much, much longer uh, to actually happen. This is really like what we call unregistered, so sort of very obvious within D.C. Like I have I also do field work in D.C. and people wear shirts like even white people wear shirts that say Chocolate City. (laughs) I've seen it. (laughs) Yeah. So D.C. is Chocolate City and people talk about it being Chocolate City. And the reason for that is that in 1970, so that was actually the peak, right, when Parliament wrote that song. Through the 40s, 50s, 60s, you got in-migration. This was part of the Great Migration out of the South. Lots of folks from North Carolina and Georgia, Black people who were moving out of the Jim Crow South, uh, found safety in D.C. because as a federal city, there were jobs available, there were non-discrimination policies, but that it was a place where you could be interracially married. There were lots of things that drew people um, to Washington. And so it just became more and more African-American. And of course, at the same time, there were processes of white flight, like there were in many other cities. And so many white residents of the city started to move out into the outer counties. And so by 1970, D.C. was actually 70% African-American. That number actually dropped below 50% for the first time since 1970 while I was in the middle of my research, uh, which was really interesting. And uh, and what's going on in D.C. is you're seeing racial change sort of move across the city. Um, I like to think of it as being like a, a, a hand fan that opens from one side and swings, and it's starting in the west um, and moving to the east. And so this quadrant is southeast, so it's the last spot to get hit by that fan opening. Um, and Black residents are moving more and more into places where there continue to be Black residents which at first was north, then was east, and now is becoming southeast. As we know from previous research, this language variety that linguists call African-American English is extremely well studied within the field of sociolinguistics. And you started with the quantitative study, so we know that. I'm very interested in the quantitative study, obviously. But the speakers in the study, although they are Black speakers of African-American English, vary a lot, not only in the types of discourses that they use to talk about the neighborhood, but also the grammatical and pronunciation features they use. Can you 
Tell us a little bit about how they use some specific elements or features of AAE in the way that they talk about place. Yeah, absolutely. And so this this was actually one of the coolest quantitative findings, and it made it way made its way into the book um, because it's really related to these discourses of place that people use. And the big thing I found was that you get interesting patterns based on topic. And so very often when we're studying AAE, we want to study like, okay, we're going to have, we're going to look at this person and maybe they use it a lot. And then we're going to compare them to this other person and see what their patterns, how their patterns differ. And instead what I did was I looked at, okay, how does any individual person's use of AAE grammatical features vary across the scope of the interview? So what happens when we're talking about them playing games when they're little versus what happens when we talk about language or what happens when we talk about DC? And what I found was that for pretty much all of my speakers, um, when they talked about race, when they talked about language, when they talked about DC, when they talked about Southeast DC, you got a higher rate, even if they didn't use African-American English very much at all, um, which is very true of many of my middle-class Black speakers, even if they didn't use it very much at all, that was where they were going to use it in those topics. And what I conclude from that is that this is a way of racializing that place, that when you talk about DC, you're just going to sound a little Blacker because DC is a Black place. When you talk about Southeast, you're just going to sound a little Blacker because Southeast is a Black place. So the final chapter of the book is called It's Change, Bridging the River. And uh, one thing that's definitely apparent is that this community that you studied has always been subject to rapid social and linguistic change. So what do you foresee in the future for language change in Washington, D.C. and for this community in particular? Well, I have my hopes and then I have my reality. And my hopes are what I'm hoping to do with this book, which is to write a book that really shows the vibrancy of the African-American community in D.C. that makes a case um, for change that keeps people in place, for change that considers the community first and foremost, and that involves the people in the community and makes sure that the things that are being made are being made for them. At the same time, watching what has happened in Northeast and Northwest, which are the other two of the other quadrants in D.C., Um, So, for example, in 1968, when some of the earliest data was collected in D.C. by the linguist Ralph Fazold and Walt Wolfram, a participant in that study talked about how unbelievably rough Georgetown was. You don't go to Georgetown unless you're looking for a fight. And now uh, Nicole is laughing because now Georgetown is the epitome of Bougie, 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 D.C. And Georgetown really interestingly has made an effort to make it impossible to get to Georgetown. So what you can't do is take a subway to Georgetown. It's very isolated and that's how it's protected the bougie-ness. So that's really funny that they were like, no, no, don't go there. It's dangerous. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, so yeah, so there was this, and many of my interviewees actually Georgetown becomes a metonym for gentrification. And so they'll just say, I don't, we don't want to become Georgetown. We don't want Georgetown to happen here. Unfortunately, I think it's probable that Georgetown will happen there. And I think to some extent, unless we really listen uh, and unless we really think about 
who these processes affect, um, unless we really do orient to that big D discourse of race, rather than just the big D discourse of economics, these processes happen unimpeded. And someday, Anacostia too will have a Whole Foods and maybe pink petunia baskets, who knows. Well, Dr. Jesse Greaser, thank you for joining us today. After the break, it's time for some wordplay. Welcome back. Now it's the time in the show where we play with language. For our wordplay quiz this week, we're very pleased to be joined by listener Caroline Norfleet of Wilmington, North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thanks. It's great to be here. Caroline is the winner of a previous wordplay challenge. And if you'd like an opportunity to come on and be quizzed by us, stay tuned for a new listener challenge at the end of the segment. So, Caroline, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am actually a recent college graduate in linguistics, currently working as an SAT tutor and hoping to go back to school for more linguistics soon. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, We would love to have you in more linguistic spaces. So for now, you're doing SAT tutoring. That sounds really challenging. How's it going? Going well so far. Definitely interesting to see how the SAT is different now, even from when I took it five or six years ago. Oh, really? So they're, they're still tinkering with it. What are they doing to it now? Honestly, lots of little subtle changes. What kind of math you're going to see can be different sometimes. I was very shocked on a recent mock test that one of my students took to see some polynomial long division and realized... I personally do not have any recollection of how to do polynomial long division. So it feels like I'm always having to learn something new. (laughs) That sounds intense. Well, I mean, I took the SAT so long ago. uh, I'm old enough to remember when they still had analogies on on the verbal section. I don't know, Nicole, if that was before or after your time. Yeah, actually... They changed it in about 2005. So I took the old version with the analogies when I was a sophomore. And then I was the first class to formally take the new one when they had gotten it. And I did better on the new one. So (laughs) I just took both just in case, you know, game the system. (laughs) But now the SAT also focuses on critical reading. So those analogies are out of fashion. But there was something kind of cool about the analogy questions. They were a little puzzle-like. Yeah, they were like little puzzles. It was it was a good thing. I I liked it at least. I don't know. I mean, I I can see why they're they're moving on and, you know, not taking that approach anymore. But, you know, on Twitter, there's a funny kind of spoof of those SAT style analogies. It's a Twitter account called Bad Analogies, and if you want to follow it, the Twitter handle is at A is to B as C is to D. And the tweets are all just ridiculous analogies based on letter patterns. So like there was one that was Omicron is to Omagod as Walter Cronkite is to Walter Godkite. Or Nicole, you'd like this one. Dietitian is to please don't die as phonetician is to please don't phone. It reminds me of that old joke. If pro is the opposite of con, what's the opposite of progress? Congress. Mm, Congress, yeah. That, that really fits these days. So in these bad analogies on Twitter... Typically, the A and the B share a sequence of letters, and then that sequence gets swapped out for something new in the C and the D parts with, you know, comical results. And sometimes it gets really absurd. Like, there was one, it went like this. Worms is to it's a wonderful life, as germs is to it's a genderful life. Or this one was just wacky. Casino is to 
mi casa es su casa, as Al Pacino is to mi alpaca es su alpaca. Oh my goodness, this is really silly. <laughs> but guess what? Caroline, you're in luck, I guess, because <laughs> we're going to take inspiration from these bad analogies for our wordplay quiz with you. All right, I'm excited. These are really funny. Okay, yeah, ours might not be quite as humorous as the ones on Twitter, but it's going to work similarly. So here's how it's going to work. Uh, we're going to give you the A and B parts of the analogy, and then you have to figure out the C and D parts from clues that we give you. So like those bad analogy tweets... A and B will have a shared letter sequence that gets swapped out in C and D. Okay, so to keep things simple, we'll just deal with single words, and the part that you'll be changing will be either at the beginning or the ending of the words. So, for instance, if I said, pig is to pork as a small seedy fruit is to an eating utensil, then you could answer, pig is to pork as... Fig is to fork. There you go. You got it right. Yeah, you, you got it right away. Um, so yeah, in that case, just the P is changing to F. But in the questions we'll give you, it'll involve changing longer sequences of letters. Does that all make sense? I, I think so. <laughs> okay, great. So here's your first analogy to figure out. Char is to bar as a famous TV bar is to the things that customers might drink there. All right, let's see. Char to bar and then a famous TV bar. I might be a little young for this, but I think I've got it. Is it cheers and beers? So char is to bar as cheers is to beers. Yes, very good. I know, like cheers is a, a little bit way back for someone who's a recent grad like you, but very well done. Great. Okay, here's another one for you. Smash is to smarts as nonsense is to a school for magic. Smash and smarts. So, and nonsense and a school for magic. I think I've got the school for magic here. Is it smash is to smarts as hogwash is to hogwarts oh yes it is well done yeah i mean the the pronunciation changes a little on those vowels but you got it that's exactly right mm -hmm. it threw me off a little but i got it in the end all right here's the next one donald is to mcdonald as a venue for a concert is to a song that was a one-hit wonder in the 90s all right donald to McDonald. It's a venue for a concert. I think I should be starting there. Not only a concert, it could also be for a sporting event or anything like that. And that one hit wonder had a, a dance that went along with the song. All right, I've got nothing. <laughs> okay, so maybe we can reverse engineer this. Can you think of a Latin inspired one hit wonder dance from the 90s? Oh, is it the Macarena? Yes. Oh, so an arena and the Macarena. There you go. Donald is to MacDonald as arena is to Macarena. There you go. Okay, we have one more for you. Starter is to starch as one social media platform is to another social media platform. All right, so we have, I'm going to get rid of this star and try to come up with two social media platforms. I think I've got it here. 
So starter is to starch as Twitter is to twitch. Yes, you got it. Well done. Now we have an analogy question for all of our listeners. See if you can figure this one out. Fast is to best as a bawdy 18th century British novel is to a bawdy 20th century British comedian. Let me repeat that one. Fast is to best as a bawdy 18th century British novel is to a bawdy 20th century British comedian. Think you've got it? Send your answer to us at spectacular at slate.com with quiz in the subject line of your email. Please include both the name of the novel and the name of the comedian. From the correct answers, we'll randomly select a winner who will receive a Slate Plus membership for one year. Or if you're already a Slate Plus member, we'll give you a one-year extension on your subscription. And we may bring you on the show to face a new wordplay challenge. So once again, that's spectacular at Slate.com with quiz in the subject line. And please respond by midnight Eastern time on February 9th. And we're very pleased to announce the winner of the Animal Crossing Challenge from our January 18th episode. Monica Dongre from Raleigh, North Carolina, figured out that if you take the word beetle and remove the word bee, you can replace it with the word cat to get the word cattle. Congratulations, Monica. Thanks so much for joining us, Caroline. You did great. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this week. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like full access to all the articles on Slate.com, zero ads on any Slate podcast, and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and One Year. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Spectacular Plus. Thanks again to Jesse Greaser for being our guest this week. Spectacular Vernacular is produced by Jasmine Ellis. Asha Saluja is managing producer for Slate Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with more spectacular vernacular. Thanks for listening. Listener.